0: Would you stand with me in honor of God's holy word? Our scripture reading this morning is going to come from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. That's the Gospel of Mark, chapters 13, verses 1 through 8. We're going to be reading from the ESV. If you're using one of the Bibles from in front of you in the seat back, it's going to be found on page 495. 495. And if you do not have a Bible, as is our custom, we want to offer you the Bible in the seat back in front of you as a gift from us at Northridge. So now, let us hear the word of the Lord. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, "Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings." And Jesus said to him, "Do you see these great buildings? Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when he, uh, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pangs. This is God's word.
1: Let's pray once again together. Father, thank you for your word and this particular portion of scripture that reminds us that nothing takes you by surprise. That, Lord, you are the one who governs, the one who oversees, the one who supersedes all of human history. You are over and superior to the raging of tyrants and the best laid plans of men. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us as we look into your word today to settle peacefully into the joy of knowing and experiencing and, and living in the bonds of your sovereignty, Lord. That you um, God are in control, you are steering the ship, and so Lord, we thank you for that. God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you want to say, Lord, that we would not uh, we would not view this through uh, the lenses that maybe we've had for too long without really considering the words or or God, that we wouldn't uh, uh, just you know immediately embrace or dismiss something, God, just because of a tradition that we hold. Lord, I pray that you would help us to just uh, to just trust you uh, to be the author of your word. And God, I, I pray for myself that I would speak clearly and um, truthfully, and that that uh, God, I would I would uh, honor you in the preaching of your word. And so I thank you for all this, God. Be with us this day. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. A couple of quick things I want to tell you about um, that you may not know about before we get started um, this this uh, afternoon, right after church, we'll start about twelve fifteen. Give you we usually end about eleven thirty, so that'll give you about forty five minutes. Um, we're going to have our second um, discussion gathering where we're just going to uh, talk about some things. Uh, to, to kind of, uh, get some conversation going in the church. And so we'll start that 1215. Uh, you can either, you can run and grab something and bring it and have lunch with us. That's what most of us are going to do. And, um, and we'll be here ready for you. We will have child care for you if you have children so that you can, uh, really enjoy the time and, and pay attention and, and participate in the discussion. So we hope you'll do that. And then lastly, I want to mention again, uh, <coughs> excuse me, our, um, our uh, coming up members classes, which will be the last Sunday in April, I'm sorry, in, in March and the first Sunday in April. Uh, and so we really want you, if you've been uh, coming to Northridge Life and considering uh, joining with us, then we want you to come to those classes. They don't make you a member; no one's obligated at that point. But we uh, we want you to just find out what what we're talking about when we talk about membership. We call it covenant partnership around here, so we would love for you to be a part of that. Um, if you're coming, um, we and some of you have already told me you're coming, but we have a sign-up sheet in the uh, on the black table here in the uh, in the west side of the foyer. And so, if you would just give us your information so that we can be in touch. With you, um, if you have already told me you're coming and you're here, um, see me before you leave today so that I can give you some some resources. And um, and for the rest of you, I'll get those to you after I get your your contact information. So just wanted to mention that. Hope uh, many of you will consider that. Um, but let's get to the words, shall we? So today we're we're getting back into our study of Mark that we've been in for some time, um, and we're beginning our journey through Mark 13. As uh, as Jim read to you, in Mark 12, the whole chapter, you'll, you'll remember that Jesus gave answers and he issued challenges to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and the scribes. And he did so as both their king and their judge, even though they did not acknowledge him as either. In chapter 13, however, the king and the judge will deliver his final verdict on the old covenant system, including the temple, the physical earthly temple as the dwelling place of God, uh, he'll, he'll deliver a verdict on the ministry of the Levitical priests and their sacrifices. The idea of God's people being confined to a single ethnicity with circumcision as the mark of their distinction. And the book of Hebrews is really helpful when we consider this covenantal conversion that is taking place with Christ's death and resurrection. How the nature of God's dealing with men and women is changing. It speaks in, in the book of, of Hebrews, in all these terms, it speaks of a better hope, of a better covenant, of better promises, of better sacrifices, of a better possession, of a better country, of a better life. And it even speaks of a sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And, and in this idea of this dramatic shift for, to the better, Hebrews says this, in Hebrews 8.13, it says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I can't think of a better passage in the entire Bible to set up Mark 13, because this vanishing away of the old and the ushering in of the new is exactly what Christ is proclaiming in Mark 13. Now, Jesus... It's telling us here in this chapter that the old covenant, which put forth works of the law as a way to obtain blessing, has served its purpose and it is being replaced by something better, something more concrete, something eternal, not subject to the whims of my shifting morality. Anybody notice how often your morality shifts? Anybody have that experience along with me? None of you are admitting it? Okay, I'll stand alone. But instead this new covenant will be based on Christ's imputed righteousness. In other words, it won't be based on a righteousness of my own that's found through the, the my uh, working to observe the law. It's found in a righteousness that Christ grants me. Yet not I, but Christ in me, as we sang. This chapter deals with the category of systematic theology. When I'm talking about systematic theology, I'm talking about how, you know, the, the the different topics, main topics, main headings that the scriptures talk about. You have Christology about Christ, ecclesiology about the church. Well, this chapter deals with the category of systematic theology called eschatology. And what eschatology is, it's a big fancy word, meaning the doctrines of last things. Eschatos in the Greek means last. And, and there are two important considerations whenever you m- wade into this area of systematic theology. It sometimes feels mysterious, scary, like you're in this misty swamp trying to figure all this out. But, the, but if we're going to figure it out, there's two considerations we got to have. Number one, we have to approach this, and hear me clearly on this, with great humility. Amen? Like many of you, I am not afraid to look you right in the eyes, if I could do it all at once, and tell you that I have a definite view on how the conclusion of this creation, as we know it, will transpire. I, I have, through study of the Word and listening to wise teachers and all kinds of years and years of banging my head against the wall, I've come to something that I believe is the way it's going to happen. Now, there are many reputable Bible scholars that agree with my conclusions, but guess what? There are many who do not. And, in fact, as we go through this over the next few weeks, you may not agree with my conclusions. And here's the deal. That's okay. It's okay. Just take a deep breath. To some degree, God has left these things hard to interpret from Scripture. And he's even shrouded them in some degree of mystery. And that's why the best minds, of which I am not one, but that's why the best minds don't always agree in this area. And yet, the church survives. Amen? We may not agree. But the church survives. Now my suspicion is that when, and some of you have heard me say this before, is that when we all stand before Christ, the very first word, before we get to worship and praise and adoration, the very first word out of our mouths in that moment, that glorious moment, will be oops because we'll we'll look at all the things that we thought we understood, we thought we knew, and we'll realize in the, in the that when we're standing there perfectly beyond the filter of our fallen minds and we know perfectly there what we struggled to know here, we will realize that that um, there's a lot we got wrong. Are we all okay with that? But this reality, if we recognize this and we approach it with humility, this reality enables us to keep the peace. Now, second, that's the first thing. The second thing is, while all this is true, while we have to be completely humble when we approach this topic, we are not, none of us, from the, from the newest Christian to the oldest saintly scholar, none of us are granted a pass on these difficult passages. God God did not say that's for R.C. Sproul, leave that alone. He didn't say that. Martin Luther had some pretty good thoughts about that. You don't have to worry about it. No, the Revelation, the the book that we all think of when we think about eschatology and doctrine of end things, this is what it says. It tells us in in chapter 1, verse 3, right when the book's getting started, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear. That doesn't mean just with your ear. It means to listen, to apply. And keep the, what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, even as we acknowledge that we can't perfectly understand everything, we are commanded to study the full scope of God's revelation, to wrestle with it, to come to the best conclusion we can with the help of the Holy Spirit, and believe these things, and hope in them by the gift of faith. Now, we can gain... From good teachers. But we shouldn't simply take the word of John Hagee or Doug Wilson or Kim Riddlebarger or Gary DeMar. Now, a reason, in case you're wondering, I'm not picking on those four guys. I picked them because in some way or another, they represent the four major views of eschatology. (laughs) We should diligently study for ourselves a variety of views with open Bibles. And we should, as we do that from the scriptures, we should consider the strength and the weakness of those views as well as our own. Did you know that your view might actually have some weaknesses in it? Do you know mine might? And so we should employ the help of trusted and wise friends, of trusted and wise teachers that can help us navigate that some. So when we're doing this, what are some things that we should consider as we proceed? Well, the, this question refers to another big big uh, word, and that is hermeneutics. Now, hermeneutics, is, you don't have to remember the word, but it just refers to the disciplines that we use to properly, and that's the key word, interpret scripture. And so when we come to any passage of scripture in the Bible, we ask questions of the text. Like we say, where does this passage land in the redemptive and historical context? In other words, what is going on in God's plan to redeem the world or what is happening in the historical surroundings? What do we know about this passage? Well, we know Rome was in charge. The Jews weren't happy about it. That's the historical context. The redemptive con- uh, context, we know that, that it happens right before the, the death of Christ and it after he's corrected the Jews for their unfaithfulness to the covenant and their general disregard for the one who is their Messiah. So on this point, when we we get here, we have to look at things like, what's the literary genre? Well, in this case, it's gospel. And who is the audience to whom Jesus is speaking in this passage? Well, they told us, four of his disciples. And how would they, those disciples he's talking to, most likely have understood his words? And... Most importantly, what are the specific questions that Jesus is answering here? Now, by paying close uh, close attention to the context clues like this and asking direct uh, contextual questions of the text, we will be more likely to discover the text's true meaning. And here's the, the last rule. We must not import Um, our presuppositions onto the text. What do I mean by that? We don't say, I don't worry about this stuff because I read a book by Hal Lindsey 40 years ago that tells me what to think. We don't say, you know, um, I let me even get more closer to home. You don't say this, I don't worry about this because Mark told me what to think. No, open your Bibles. Read, dig, study, find out, listen to people, put it all together and see if you can come up with something that you can say the Bible backs this up. Now, we also go, you know, going on and on in hermeneutics, we ask questions about types and antitypes. What represents Christ or his work in the text? What contrasts it? In the study of eschatology in particular, we ask if a, if a passage is describing something that is to come or things that are already fulfilled. We look to see how the writers across all the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, understood the subject matter being discussed. Now, so, everybody still with me so far? Okay, I'm seeing a few nods. That's good. I'll take what I can get. As we dig into Mark 13, some of you will have heard similar perspectives to what what I will share, whether you agree or disagree. Others will have never heard my perspective, and others will have never considered that there was another perspective other than what you've heard all your life or heard in other churches. And so here's the deal. Here's another deep breath you can take. My goal over the next few weeks is not to manipulate you into embracing my perspective. I could not care less. Let me say that again. I could not care less. But my goal is to actually inspire you, teach you to ask hard questions of this text and use proper hermeneutical tools to discover the probable meaning. And when we are done, if you disagree with where I've landed, I just pray that you'll re-examine the text using those same her- hermeneutical tools on what you believe. Also, I hope that you will call me and let me have the honor of buying you a cup of coffee so we can have a glorious, beautiful argument about it. Because I love, I love getting to do that. And so anyway, um, I'd love to, I'd love to do that with you. So if you'll do that, if you'll do those two things, you'll have a greater confidence in what you believe after testing it with scripture. But you mustn't ignore the questions raised here in Mark 13 and in other eschatological texts. That's like cutting, you know, it's like you're reading Cinderella and you put down the book before they get to the happily ever after. That's the point of the book is the happily ever after. How do we get there? Well, eschatology is like that. How do we get to the happily ever after? That's what we're after. So here's the picture. That was all introduction. Now I'm going to preach a message. Here's the picture. All the events, all the challenges of Mark 12 have been completed. And Jesus and his disciples are departing the temple. And we read in verse 1, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The temple at Jerusalem was a wonder of the ancient world. This wasn't the temple that Solomon built because the Babylonians destroyed that one in 587 BC. But after the Jews returned from their exile for 70 years in Babylon, they rebuilt the temple. Now, that temple was not nearly as beautifully adorned as the first one that Solomon built. And even Ezra and Nehemiah tells us when people who are old enough to have seen both temples, they wept at the second one because it looked like a disaster compared to the glory of the first one. And it, But it was this temple, that second temple, that Herod the Great began a massive re- uh, renovation project on around 19 B.C., about 20 years or so before the birth of Christ. And this resulted, this this was a massive project, and it resulted in the temple being one of the most impressive construction projects during the entire time of the Roman Empire. And the reason, because Herod did it, that's the reason that we know this temple as Herod's temple. And this building project was so massive, started 20 years before Christ, and it was still continuing as uh, in, during the lifetime of Christ. So when it was completed, this massive complex occupied 35 acres. It had walls and a sanctuary that that shot 150 feet into the air. And it was described by ancient historians as a mountain of marble that was decorated with gold. Now, I remember in my travels the first time I saw the Lincoln Monument in Washington, D.C. I remember the first time I saw the Sears Tower in Chicago. And I remember marveling at the craftsmanship and the sheer size of these structures. And I am not surprised at all that the disciples paused to marvel at the magnitude of the temple and, and, and to take time to point it out to Jesus. This says something about the building. It says something about, uh, about what, they were, what they were witnessing. But the surprising thing in the text is not that they would stop and say, look at this. This is amazing. Look at, just take it all in, Jesus. That's not the amazing thing. The amazing thing is that Jesus, in response, made no comment of admiration of what he was seeing. Not one. Not a breath. Instead, what he does in verse two, it says, Jesus said to him, do you see all these great buildings? There will not be here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is talking about utter obliteration. There's not going to be a fire in the kitchen that they'll have to redo. He's saying the entire thing is going to be ripped down to its foundation. Thus, the judge's gavel fell. The judge of all has, has made his his verdict and the judge, or his sentence rather, and the, and the gavel falls. Jesus has now predicted the unthinkable. That Jerusalem would fall and that the temple that they were admiring at that moment would be utterly demolished. Now we're going to discuss this in greater details in the coming weeks. But we must note that Jesus didn't just utter some wispy and careless prediction. He didn't say, you know what? I bet this is going to happen. No, 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 no. He actually, later in the chapter, he assigned a time frame to his words. In verse 30 of Mark 13, we didn't read this this morning, but he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, a generation in the Jewish mind is about 40 years. Now, did this happen what Jesus predicted in the predicted time frame. Well, the word is absolutely yes. Jesus said these words in approximately AD 33 and in, and the Roman general Titus sacked Jerusalem, seized Jerusalem, sacked it and utterly destroyed it along with its temple in AD 70 and one of the most horrific, uh, you know, uh, wars that ever ha- the world has ever seen. Now, so, Think about this. They're, they're admiring this temple that's taken, in John it tells us it took 47 years to complete and they're, and they're marveling at it. They, the, it's the center of Jewish life. Everything is represented by that temple. Now with that in mind, imagine if I said to you this morning, if we were an entirely different kind of church, and I stood to you to say and said, I have a word from the Lord. This morning I want to tell you that within 12 months, All of Lubbock will be destroyed and it'll amount to nothing but a pile of rubble. Jones Stadium, gone. The South Plains Mall, gone. Uh, the, you know, Covenant, UMC, gone. Now, there'll be two responses. You, you might not believe me. Now, usually when people says I have a word from the Lord, it's best not to believe them. But you might not believe me. You might think that, the, that you and the city that you call home were safe. You might roll your eyes and not give it a second thought again. You might just walk out of this church for the last time and say, that guy is weird. But, but, if you believed me, if you had seen over the years that I had a strange habit of Accurately predicting future events, that I had this strange habit of, of freely exercising the use of the power of God. You would, if I, if that's who I was, you most likely would be watching intently for some sign that what I had predicted was imminently at hand. Now what do you think? When not me, I I don't say within 40 years this temple is going to be torn down. But when Jesus himself says that, what do you think the disciples believed about Jesus' words? Do you think they rolled their eyes and dismissed what he had said after three years of watching him close? Had they experienced anything in the last three years that would make them more likely to take him very, very seriously? So once they arrive at the Mount of Olives, well, they naturally have questions. They don't want to just let that drop and say, okay, we'll put that in our notebook and not think about it again. No, no, no. They want to they want to dive deep on what Jesus has just said. Now, the Mount of Olives, geographically, it sat directly opposite from the temple complex on the other side of the Kidron Valley. And and so imagine the picture. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives. They can see clearly this massive temple. And Jesus has just said this. And their imaginations just expended. They're, they're just worn out with the horrible visions of what Jesus has just said. They can't even imagine it. And so they ask Jesus two important questions in order to gain vital information. Verse 4. Tell us. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So what are they asking? When will this happen, Jesus? And by what signs will we be able to know that it's about to happen? Now, in the remainder of this morning's text, Jesus gives four specific signs that that his judgment on the temple is about to take place. Look for this disciples, watch this, watch these, and when you see this happen, know that it's about to happen. Now I want you to consider from the pages of history whether or not Jesus was accurate about the conditions he said that would emerge before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70. So verse 5, and Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. That's always good advice. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will lead many astray. Now, so the question we have to ask, if, if you have this roughly 40, uh, 40 year time frame from 8033 to, to uh, 8070, did many actually appear claiming to be the messianic savior of Israel? Jesus' concern here seems to be that the approaching of the fulfillment of his words would be a time that would be riddled with deception. So much so that he warns the twelve, lest they be led astray by the ravings of false messiah. So Flavius Josephus, who is a a first century Jewish historian, many of you probably heard of him, um, tells us the story of uh, Theudis. I'm hoping I'm saying that right. Who was a false prophet. Who brought many out to the wilderness, he said, and Jesus said that, he said, when they say to you in Matthew 24, he said, when they say to you, come out to the wilderness, and that's exactly what Theodos did. He said, hey, come out to the wilderness and, and I'm gonna prove that, that I'm the Messiah, but I'm gonna use my words and I'm gonna command the, uh, the, the Jordan River to split right in half, just like when we p- took the land. He also tells us of an Egyptian who claimed that if people would follow him up to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus is teaching right now, that he would speak the word and the, and the walls of Jerusalem would come tumbling down down he lists several other examples of false prophets that claim great power and the ability to deliver the people but here's the deal here's the test every single one of them were mercilessly executed by the romans but among all of these false christs unlike the real one there is not one who is resurrected from the dead whose words are we going to trust Verse 7, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Next, Jesus describes a time of great international turmoil, speaking both of war and the threat of, uh, or the rumors of war. When he says nation will rise against nation, generally we can understand that as nations, Gentile nations, will rise against the people of God, the Jews. So, in eighty forty, um, you know, when he talks about this, he says that there'll be both war and the threat of war, rumors of war. In eighty forty, Emperor Caligula decided that he would. Um, put images of himself, statues of himself, in every sacred precinct across the Roman Empire. And he, he, would, he included in this the temple. Now, he, what he wanted to do was replace all of the local deities, all the national deities, with, with just him, an image of him, so that he would be the god of all the Roman Empire. Just he alone would be worshipped. Now, upon hearing this, how do you think the Jews reacted? They were prepared to do whatever was necessary to prevent this abomination from taking uh, from taking place. They armed themselves. They prepared themselves. They trained themselves. They were ready to make sure it didn't happen. But the mighty Roman Empire was, was prepared to use all of their military might to make sure that the emperor's orders were completely fulfilled, carried out in full. So the fuse was lit, and, and blood, if this thing proceeds, the blood would be spilled. But fortunately, by the grace of God, this proved to be a rumor of war. Because this God that was supposed to be worshipped in every precinct of the Roman Empire died before he instituted his vile plan. But can you even imagine hearing that? The stress and anxiety this would have caused, the, up, the uproar this would have caused among the Jewish people. Now, were there just rumors of war? No, there were actual wars too. There were actual military conflicts between AD 33 and AD 70, an uprising in I can't talk. Caesarea ended with 20,000 Jews dead, and in Alexandria 50,000 Jews were put to death. Other conflicts over this time proved to be proved this to be a very very bloody time in human history. And so verse 8, he proceeds, there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. There will, But all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. The last two things Jesus mentions are earthquakes and famines. Now, did these things also take place as Jesus predicted? Well, we know from history that a massive earthquake hit the region of Phrygia in AD 61. And another completely wiped out, the, the city of Pompeii, just wiped it off the face of the earth in the year 63. Quite possibly the most famous volcanic uh, eruption in all of human history. You can still go uh, to Pompeii and visit the, the devastation that was, that was wrought by that. Now Josephus he mentions famines Josephus also mentions four famines that took place between 80 41 and 80 50 and all of them resulted in a massive loss of life think about that if we you know if there's a celery famine probably most of us will be okay but Here's the deal. A famine was a serious problem in a time and a culture where people depended not just on agriculture but on local agriculture in order to have the food necessary to live and to and to feed their own families. When, when something happened locally to agriculture, it, it starved everybody. So what I want you to see from this brief reflection through verses 1 through 8 of Matthew, Mark 13, clearly... Jesus wasn't just throwing out his opinions. Would you agree with that? Jesus wasn't putting his best guesses out there like throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what sticks. He knew what he was talking about. And not one of his holy words failed to come to pass. So what should this tell us? Now think about this. This is where we apply it. Think about this. If this is true... What should this tell us, this, these brief eight verses tell us about the divinity of Christ? Could a mere man, like I, you know, jokingly said I would do, can a mere man prophesy this accurately? Or are these the words of God himself, the king, the judge? If we have to recognize the accuracy of the divine words from the lips of Jesus, how much confidence should we have in the written word with which he's left us? Should we put ourselves as the judges of that word and say, well, I think this is true, but this may not be. And, you know, there have been so many translations and so many languages and all that foolishness that we tell ourselves to not just believe what God has said. This is what Proverbs says about that. Every word of God proves true. Did Mark 1 through, 13 1 through 8 prove true? I'm asking, did Mark 13 1 through 8 prove true? Every word of God proves true, and here's the best part He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. And we're going to see that clearly next week. There's one last thing we have to think about over the next week. What did Jesus mean when he used the word end, E N D? When he said, the end is not yet? In spite of all these signs. Similar what, Similarly, at the very end, what does he mean when he says, these are but the beginnings of birth pains? What does he mean by that? And this is what we'll be wrestling with by and large next week. I hope you'll be here for part two. We're going to work to discover what Jesus means when he talks about the end. And even look at the other terms in the scriptures like the end of the age. And we're going to use our hermeneutical tools that we're developing and sharpening on this passage, all of Mark 13, in order to have the best eschatology that we possibly can. But what we've seen today is that Jesus speaks, not spoke, speaks with authority. Amen? And like Samuel, this is what the Bible says about Samuel, none of his words fell to the ground. Think about that if you still haven't put your trust in him. If you are still rolling the dice on your soul, that maybe Jesus isn't everything he claims to be, think about that. None of his words fall to the ground. What on earth could you possibly be waiting on? What on earth? Next week, we're going to focus on the reliability of God's plan and the evidence that he is the Lord and the sovereign over all of human history. And so I hope you'll be here for that. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for preserving this in scripture for us. Lord, help it to, as we consider these things of what you said would happen and the signs that you said that would precede it. Help us to see this, to read it and to know that God, that you're, you know, you said heaven and earth would pass away, but my words will never pass away. And God, I pray that our confidence in the words we read in daily times of Bible reading and, and times of hearing sermons and hearing your word expounded, God would become much more meaningful to us as we think about the reliability of the divine Son of God who speaks and everything falls in line. So we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would just help us to, as we consider these words and and what you've done, and to, to usher in the new covenant, I pray that our hearts would rise with the desire uh, that you would, as it says in Revelation, that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus, and that we would be found looking for that day and hoping for that day, trusting in that day. So, Lord, we thank you for all of this. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs> let come and, and help us this morning. Um, this is such a treasured time in our services because this is the time when we have a very, an opportunity through the working of the Holy Spirit to have just a divine fellowship with the risen, resurrected Christ, the risen body of Christ. And so we, we want you to, um, deeply consider that, that this is not just some church ceremony it's not just some element of a liturgy this is this is a moment that christ has given us to to give us a foretaste of what he has done through through the cross what he will do one day that we fellowship with him now through these elements and we will fellowship with him one day face to face when he as he tells us in the gospels will once again drink of the fruit of this vine with us and so I, I just want to uh, uh, invite you to come if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. If you're not, then just stay where you are, but catch me after church and let's talk about it. We want you to, to be able to come uh, with a clean conscience and knowing that you have put your trust in Christ. And we would love to have the opportunity to help you with that. But for the rest of you, go ahead and come, receive the elements, and we will take them when we come back to our seats. The Apostle Paul writes for us in First Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup, After supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup together. Now let's just pause a moment and give thanks to the Lord. God, we thank you for a new and better covenant, a new and better Adam, a new and better promise a new and better possession, new and better sacrifice. We thank you for this because it is these things that that gives us the confidence that our sins are forgiven. It gives us the confidence that you are going to receive us into your kingdom one day. It gives us the confidence that even now through these elements that we have fellowship with the risen Lord. And so we thank you for all of this. Thank you for this indescribable gift, as Paul puts it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to just read this benediction over you. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, Um, In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.